and start your engines. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. You're listening to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the broadcast. Good to have you with us. Uh, it's been a couple, three weeks since I did a live show. I'm trying to get back into uh, the swing of this, doing this every single week. As a lot of you know, there's a lot of things going on right now in my personal life, if you follow me on Facebook, but uh, all is good. And uh, I've been doing a lot of live videos, like almost um, you know, every day or two uh, while I'm out riding my bike, I'll, I'll stop and do a video. I've done some live videos in St. Augustine recently, which are really neat because you get to uh, see me and hear my financial advice and also see some really cool St. Augustine stuff. So uh, if you're not following me on Facebook, my my name on Facebook is my author name, James L. Paris. And uh, I don't know how I got that messed up, right? Because everybody knows me as Jim Paris, but my author name is James L. Paris. Uh, it is what it is. So if you're looking for my books, you'll have to type in James L. Paris over on Amazon. I think there's some gardening guy that goes by Jim Paris over on Amazon. So if you if you see a gardening book by Jim Paris, it is not me. I can confirm that with you tonight on the broadcast. In any case, a lot to get into tonight. And uh, wow. Well, I want to start with this. I'm going to make a prediction. I don't do a lot of predicting, but I'm going to make a prediction that Trump will not be the nominee in 2024. And I, I'm making that prediction. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on why I feel so strongly about that. But the, this um, little uh, row between Trump and DeSantis is sort of starting to build up. And uh, Trump just said that it would be disloyal for DeSantis to run. Now, I did vote for Trump. And like a lot of people, I'm not a big fan of Trump personally, uh, but I do like his policies. So I think like a lot of Christian people, uh, I voted for the policies more than I did the man. Although I will tell you that I did love him taking on the establishment, uh, sort of his no holds barred approach to uh, responding to people in public. I didn't really love, you know, him taking a week or two out of his schedule to do like Twitter fights with Rosie O'Donnell and things like that. But uh, so apparently there is this um, thought now that Trump is, is pushing this line that it would be disloyal for Ron DeSantis uh, to run in 2024. And, and look, um, everybody's talking about DeSantis being vice president and who knows? I mean, that could end up being the ticket, you know, Trump and DeSantis. And I'm still I'm seeing a lot of polls saying Trump is way ahead of DeSantis. Um, but look, I I don't think Trump is going to be the nominee. And let me tell you why. I'm connected 
with a lot of Christian conservatives and also a lot of people here locally that are Republicans. And and I really believe, uh, you know, this may be narcissistic for me to say this, but I really believe that my circle of contacts here in this area are pretty much a microcosm of uh, Republicans nationwide. I, I think largely um, I have a good gauge of what is going on with uh, conservatives and Republicans. And, and here's what I hear from almost every conservative and Republican that I know. They will say, uh, loved Trump in his first term, but his time is over. It's time for DeSantis. And I have uh, said DeSantis is Trump without the baggage. And, and Trump's baggage is what we've all tolerated. Uh, his very thin skin, how he's got to get into uh, side issues and arguments uh, with people on Twitter. And, and he uh, has been distracted um, during his presidency. Uh, I think DeSantis is much more disciplined. I think DeSantis is much more effective. He is like Trump, but without all of the negative stuff that you get with Trump. And I think a lot of us have said, well, you know what? Um, we love Trump's policies so much that we're going to put up with kind of the negative side of Trump. And I have talked to countless conservatives and Republicans that agree with this position that we liked Trump in that first term, but we're not Trump fans uh, going forward. So here's what my big question is going to be for Christians and conservatives. So we had all of these prominent Christians that found reasons to come out publicly and say, can't vote for Trump, can't do it, you know, can't support this guy. And I'm wondering if they'll do the same thing with DeSantis, these, you know, prominent ones, the the Beth Moores, for example, the uh, John Pipers, for example, if they're going to come out and say, nope, I can't support uh, DeSantis because he was a Trump supporter. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but honestly, I personally think that Trump is polarizing. And I think that when it comes to winning in a general election, I, I honestly believe that Ron DeSantis is a better choice. And it's not only because DeSantis is Trump without the negative baggage. The other thing about DeSantis is he's young. He's like in his mid 40s. And I saw a poll recently, and I think a lot of people agree with this. We are tired of presidents that are 70 and 80 years old. And, and we've got Biden talking about running again uh, at 80. Uh, it To me, uh, I think people are looking to hearken back, you know, to the days of a younger president like a JFK. I, I think people would like to see a fam, a young family again in the white house, somebody much younger. And I, I think DeSantis is the guy I really do. He's obviously going to carry Florida. He would obviously carry Texas. I think he would, he would do really well in Ohio. I think his likability is so much higher than Trump. I just think he's the better option. Uh, and I don't see a reason for DeSantis to take the veep position. I mean, being the vice president of the United States, you know, certainly is a an honor and a privilege. But honestly, if I were a governor of a big state like Florida and I'm the top guy, I'm the top executive in the state, I would think of it honestly as a step down to be a vice president. 
And that's just my view on it. I don't know if DeSantis would look at it that way. Uh, a lot of people are saying, well, look, uh, it's not DeSantis's turn. He should be vice president for the one term, and then Trump would be term limited. Then DeSantis comes next. And that's certainly one possibility. But I'm just going to make this prediction tonight. We'll see if I'm right or not, that Trump is not going to be the nominee in 2024. Um, all of these things going on, these legal issues, all of this stuff going on, I don't know. And and I think that people, including conservatives, including Republicans, including a lot of Trump supporters, are burned out on Trump. I, I just feel that way. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You can, of course, uh, private message me on Facebook or on Twitter, or you can email me, jim at christianmoney.com. Well, I have to be honest with you and tell you that I lost my cool yesterday. I'm not usually like this. I'm normally the guy that will sit patiently in traffic and not say anything, not beat my horn. I'm the guy that, like, hears other people beeping their horns, and I think, ah, oh, what horrible people. But I, I did it yesterday. I lost it. And uh, uh, so I love to go up to St. Augustine and there is a parking garage up there. And so when you pull into the parking garage on a weekend, it's pretty full. So, you know, you got, you're going to have to go up to the fourth to, you know, the, the second or the highest level of the garage to get a parking spot. You just know that. And as you're driving in and you know, like all parking garages, you start to circle and you go up a level, then you circle again, you go up to the next level. So in any case it was packed and there were dozens and dozens of cars behind me and I'm on the third level and somebody with a stroller and little kids, a family, they're walking to their car. So the car directly in front of me sees this and decides that it's they're going to wait for that space to open up. And there's dozens and dozens of cars uh, behind them, including me. I'm the first car behind uh, this lady. And uh, I, I beat my horn and she like stuck her head out the window. And so I'm waiting for this spot. I said, look, there are dozens of cars behind you. you we can't all wait for this. You have to pull ahead, go up to the next level to find an open space. Uh, she refused and, and sat there and it was a good five or six minutes. Now I have no problems with the family loading their family. I mean, mom and dad loading the kids, loading the strollers, all of that stuff. That's normal. But people are increasingly selfish where, and, and what's crazy about a parking garage is, so you circle around and you go one level higher, right? All it means is you're just going to go over to the elevator. It's the same number of steps to the elevator and you're going to press the first floor and you're going to go down. It, it's, it's literally, it takes, you no. you're not, it's not like you're in a big single level parking lot where, uh, maybe there's a reason to put your flasher on and make everybody wait five or six minutes behind you. Uh, so you can get that closer space because you don't want to walk as far, which I always think is crazy, right? I mean, don't we all need the exercise? If there aren't any open spaces, go to the farther spaces. But in a parking garage, you just circle up to the next level. You pull your car in and then you walk the same number of steps to the to the elevator and you press the first floor and you go down. It, it's no big deal. Um, but people are becoming increasingly selfish. And I normally don't do that. I'm not one to lean on my horn and say anything, but I had to say something 
because I, I looked in my rear view mirror and as far as I could see, and this is, I'm on the third level. So this would go the whole third level, the second level, the first level, dozens and dozens of cars are all just sitting there all waiting because this one lady wants this spot and she's going to hold everybody up with her blinker on to get this one spot. Anyway, I beat my horn. I said my piece. She rolled up her window. <laughs> that was that. Uh, but in any case, I mean, I just get to a point sometimes where I'm thinking, are, can you not think of other people? Can you not think of the other people here? There's, It's not all about you. There are other people, dozens and dozens of other cars that want to park. Why hold everybody up so you get this one spot when it really makes no difference? I don't know. Okay, moving ahead here. Andy Stanley. And uh, of course, Andy Stanley is a mega church pastor in Atlanta. And he has some super committed followers. And he's a very polarizing figure. Uh, but there are so many articles uh, coming out. And I just saw another one on Christian Post this weekend. Uh, Andy Stanley seems to be going off the deep end. He is increasingly becoming a progressive, becoming a leftist. And, you know, the, the question that I always raise when I see these megachurch pastors uh, soft peddling on cultural issues and being very politically correct, uh, you know, oh, everybody's got their church closed for covid uh, for a few months. I'm going to close mine uh, for well beyond what everybody else uh, closes their church. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to come out and, uh, you know, every cultural issue that is addressed directly in the Bible, I'm going to come out and say, well, you know, there's a number of ways to look at this. You don't have to be so cut and dried about this issue when the Bible is very clear about some of these issues. Um, Andy Stanley is clearly one of these guys. And, and this is how you can always when you when you look at their teaching and you see them under criticism and you want to try to make sense of it. I think the one question that you have to ask is, is this guy saying what is biblical or what is popular? And when you look at the ministry of Christ, which led to being crucified, obviously Jesus Christ was not preaching a popular message because in the end, the culture said, we don't want you here. We're going to nail you to a cross. Uh, it's very tempting for these Christian celebrities, these authors, these mega church pastors to come out and try to water down these black and white biblical issues so that they can remain popular in the culture. And that appears to be clearly what is happening with Andy Stanley. And uh, it, it's interesting, though, because Andy Stanley supporters, no matter what evidence that you produce to them, what it, you, no matter what information you could show them a video, well, Andy Stanley said this, and here it is. They just cannot see any problems with this guy's increasingly liberal and watered down theology. And it is almost like a cult. And I hate to use the word cult because 
uh, I think it's too strong of a word, but when I'm saying cult, what I mean is uh, simply following a man and not being willing to question his theology. And look, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm banned from YouTube, right? I'm banned from YouTube because uh, what I have to say in this show does not always make people on the left very happy. And that's the price you pay. Uh, so if you're somebody that that has core values and you're not willing to water them down, uh, you're not as popular. And maybe that's why my show is not as popular. My books are not as popular. Maybe that's why I was banned from YouTube. But uh, Andy Stanley is just uh, every time I see another article about him, I'm like, wow, he's gone that far. Wow, he's gone that far. But, you know, check it out for yourself. And again, if you're an Andy Stanley a supporter. Um, a lot of you I know are, and you're on my Facebook. I'm happy to hear the other side. I, I really am. Uh, but uh, Andy Stanley uh, continues to water down theology. He continues to uh, push the position that Christians should not be political. That's one of his core beliefs. Um, and that means that as Christians, as conservatives, we should basically uh, stay out of uh, publicly. We should stay out of election issues. We're, we're not here on earth uh, to win elections. And that's basically seeding, uh, seeding our culture, uh, seeding our values, giving up uh, these elections um, by, by basically saying we don't have a right to have a voice. Uh, and because we have a voice that somehow destroys our ability to also share the gospel. I don't think these are mutually exclusive things. I think we can be uh, evangelistic. I think we can also uh, we can also stand up for core values. I, I don't see a conflict there. Uh, all right, this proxy war with Russia, and this is exactly what it is. It is a proxy war with Russia. We are at war with Russia. Now, I'm not saying that to say I'm against that necessarily. I continue to ask the question though, how far are we willing to go in this proxy war with Russia before it becomes not a proxy war and becomes a real war? And, and I'm just asking that question because I don't think that, uh, I don't think we're calculating the risk in this, uh, I'm all for Ukraine. I have friends that are Ukrainian. I think it's horrible what's happening in Ukraine. On the other hand, I am not convinced that Putin is Hitler and that his ambitions would take him then to try to annex Poland or annex Germany. I, I don't believe that. Um, so we're in a proxy war. We've been in proxy wars all throughout our history. And I'm simply raising the question and I've raised it on social media. How far do we want to go with the proxy war before we realize it may become more than that? And that is simply because now Germany's sending tanks, we're going to be sending tanks. And now the, um, there are, there's a growing, uh, group at the Pentagon that are pushing, uh, for us to send F 16 fighter jets to Ukraine. Um, so I, I'm just, and I asked this question on my social media. Uh, I, I, I asked the question, which is this, what happens if we're transporting these tanks, uh, transport, you know, sending these jets over 
and Russia engages uh, in those shipments and we lose servicemen. Are we in World War Three? Matters of war are always complicated. They really are. There's a lot of people that look back historically and say, we should have never been in Vietnam, you know, but at the time it was more complicated than that because there was this idea that we had to draw a line somewhere and that if we didn't, you know, fight the communist there, we'd have to fight them. Uh, they would continue to expand and we'd have to fight them in other places. So we continue to try to analyze a current military conflicts uh, by using World War II as the example. I think it's a mistake because I think that it is not necessarily true that in every case, uh, every time there's a conflict that the um, the individuals involved, we can find a parallel to World War II. So I know it's easy to go back and say, oh, Putin is the same as Hitler uh, and he's going to try to overtake all of Europe. Uh, I, it's easy to do that, but I'm not so sure that that's correct. Uh, and I'm simply saying that how much blood and treasure are we willing to put into uh, the defense of Ukraine? Uh, I'm personally for supporting them uh, financially, um, giving them some amount of uh, weaponry. I just don't know where the line is. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to make that assessment. I simply keep asking the question. It's incrementalism, right? The more, the the bigger the weapons, the missile systems, the 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 uh, tanks, the fighter jets. At what point are U.S. forces on the ground there? And I'm not saying I'm necessarily against that. I just I'm. I'm ambivalent about it right now. I'm just not sure that I want to see American young men drawn into something like that. And I don't know at what point, you know, what is the tipping point of us giving armaments to Ukraine? At what point does this trigger something much larger? And we can't forget that Russia is a nuclear power. And uh, we, we, we kind of don't think about it too much. Uh, people in the 60s thought about it, uh, you know, very frequently. Cuban Missile Crisis, all of that. Uh, the drills where kids were, you know, put under their desks to, uh, you know, get uh, pre- to prepare themselves for a nuclear uh, attack, which was ridiculous to think about a desk helping anybody. But in any case, um, it's it's a tough question. It really is. But uh, I think the danger is not analyzing it and addressing the question and then just incrementally um, letting things continue to escalate, which is what appears to be happening. I just don't know how far is too far and how many Americans would want boots on the ground there or even want what could turn into World War III. I, I, I just don't know where the line is. And I don't think a lot of our leaders are thinking this through as we continue uh, to escalate things. Uh, speaking of war and conflicts and nuclear threat, uh, an Air Force general this week predicted a war with China by the year 2025. And uh, boy, I hope he's wrong, but it appears that China is, you know, China's pushing 
pushing the envelope, and uh, I don't know where uh, where we are going to draw the line with China. I, I know there is this narrative that the U.S. would absolutely step in and engage if there was any military activity between China and Taiwan. Um, I don't know. Again, it's a very similar situation to Ukraine. Uh, do Are we willing to go into a nuclear exchange with China over Taiwan? It's it's a big question. It's a complicated question. Uh, Air Force General predicting that by the year 2025, which is in just two years, of course, that we will be at war with China. This story from Zero Hedge, which, by the way, I love Zero Hedge. Fifty seven percent of Americans cannot afford a one thousand dollar emergency. And I'm not sure that this is new. Uh, the number is probably higher, of course, than it has been. But very few people have savings for emergencies. And so um, what what happens is, and, and I know people that live like this, they have no savings. And so this is where these predatory businesses uh, take advantage of people, where people are renting their furniture by the week, even renting their tires by the week or the month. Uh, insanity buy here pay here car lots payroll advance uh type companies um the this is these are the these are the organization types of businesses that take advantage of those people that don't have any money in savings uh and it looks like uh times are getting tougher and tougher and look when gas is where it is and the price of food is where it is I'm glad that my kids are all grown. I mean, uh, when you go to the grocery store and a tiny little package of ground beef is 10 bucks, uh, when you go to the gas station and you're paying over three and a half dollars a gallon, not too long ago, $4 a gallon or, or more, uh, it's tough to make it. It it's tough. And, uh, it's not just gas. It's not just food. It's pretty much everything, uh, is going up in price. Uh, not even to mention things like medical care, uh, for example. Uh, and if you got a family that you got to feed five people, you got, you know, you're married, you've got three or four kids. Uh, it's tough. It's really tough. And uh, more and more people are right on the edge with uh, very little money to go to. Um, I saw this today online and I thought it was fascinating because I have never heard of this before, but there is a European documentary uh, company uh, documentary uh, film company that is doing a film. It's being filmed in Las Vegas and uh, it is called mole people. And there are apparently a thousand homeless people that live in the storm drains in Las Vegas. It is literally like a small city below Las Vegas, and there is a documentary film company that's making a movie about this. And I read an article about it, and uh, they interviewed some of the people. They, you know, people are uh, down there living in the, um, you know, the storm drains, and they've got their little area set up where they sleep, and they've got their supplies and everything. And apparently, it's like a community in and of itself, and people look out for each other. And uh, that's where the homeless are living. 
Uh, and I am noticing even here in my town, which is a little bit more of an upscale beach community here in Florida, I'm noticing more and more homeless people. And, uh, in St. Augustine, where I go a lot, 20 minutes from here, tons of homeless people. Uh, so it, the confusion about this is why there are so many, it seems like there's a growing number of homeless people, but there's also this shortage of workers. There's this shortage of workers in particular in places like restaurants. You know, these are unskilled jobs where it's like, look, uh, and I'm even seeing signs like fast food places here saying starting wage, $15, $17 an hour. Um, and yet, even though those jobs are are available and with benefits and everything, yet there are all these increasingly number of homeless. And, and I put this on my Facebook and I ask people, you know, can you make sense of this? Because. I get it if there aren't jobs and people don't have a way to make money and to, you know, have a small place of their own, then they're they're homeless. I get that. You know, obviously you go back to, you know, uh, movies like, you know, Grapes of Wrath, The Great Depression, all of that. I get that. But I don't understand this increasing number of homeless and help wanted signs everywhere. One person said, uh, yeah, this is because people are sick and tired of those kind of jobs. People don't want to work in restaurants anymore. They don't want to work as janitors or or do maid service at a hotel. People are sick of those kind of service jobs. And post-COVID, they're not going back to that kind of stuff. Well, I don't know. I mean, when I was younger, I did those kind of jobs. When I was growing up, I, I worked in restaurants. A lot of what I did was cleaning, cleaning toilets, mopping, sweeping. I mean, I've cleaned up horrible stuff. Um, you know, I worked at a 24-hour restaurant where people would come in drunk and throw up. And they would say, Jim, get a mop in a bucket. And I'd be out there cleaning it up. Um, so I'm, it, it's it's tough because... I know restaurant owners, I know restaurants here locally that are closing down because they can't get workers. But yet the number of homeless, the number of people struggling uh, is going up. Um, One other theory on this is that there is um, an increasing, well, there's obviously been increasing money for COVID relief. So these programs where people are getting more in, um, you know, SNAP, the, the food uh, stamp program, they're getting more money for that. They're getting uh, more tax, uh, you know, uh, credits, um, uh, earn income credit, those kind of things. So those programs, um, a lot of the state uh, welfare programs have been all uh, boosted. Uh, I'm going to cough here for a second. <coughs> uh, all boosted uh, during the COVID time. And those programs are all tapering off now. So all of that money, it's not going away completely. It's just tapering back to where it was before COVID. And that tapering back is just uh, coming to fruition now. And people are predicting, well, when when people get so much less in their earned income tax credit, when they get so much less for the the uh, SNAP program, for the uh, food stamp program, uh, w- when there's not as much money you know, there, they're going to go back to work. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's just uh, an interesting cultural shift that has happened in our employment market where we've lost kind of this service level. I think part of it too is teenagers. 
you know, when I was, I started a paper out when I was like eight years old, I had nine years old. I had a paper out, uh, you know, banging on people's doors, collecting money for their, for their newspaper subscription, getting up when it was dark, going on my bicycle in the snow to deliver newspapers and teenagers today. Uh, they're just, I think a lot of teenagers today are just too good, too good to work. And uh, I'm seeing this like, oh, well, I, I can't because I'm in a, the IB program or the AP program or I'm in all these after school things, debate club and all these things. And you know what? I think all of that is wonderful. I really do. But I also think there is a place for young people to work. And even if it's just a summer job. So, OK, you can maybe convince me you can't work during the school year because you're super academically uh achieving you've got all this stuff you're doing after school you're the president of your class you're the president of the debate club you're the quarterback on the football team head of the cheerleader squad oh okay you, you got you sold me you can't work during the school year but what about the summer what about a summer job uh i don't know i think part of it is teenagers have disappeared too from the workforce, which that used to be, you know, those kind of starter jobs at working at the restaurants, washing dishes, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, my kids had those kind of jobs when they were growing up. I had those kind of jobs growing up. I think it builds character. I think it's good to have those experiences. Uh, it just seems like something's changing, uh, in our culture. Uh, this story in Jay Leno, who, you know, recently had that garage fire where he had all those serious burns, some kind of a steam uh, fueled car that he was working on and he got burned. That was a few months ago. Well, now uh, there was a, a motorcycle. Uh, he was in a motorcycle wreck and has multiple broken bones. And uh, I think he's 72 now. Always. I always liked Jay Leno. So our best wishes uh, uh, go out to uh, Jay Leno for a speedy uh, recovery. Uh, so one thing I have been talking about a little bit, cause a lot of my videos on Facebook are about mortgages because, um, I am, uh, you know, working in that industry again, that there are down payment assistance programs, and this is, uh, really popular now. So if you qualify for an FHA, you know, loan 96 and a half percent loan, uh, that three and a half percent down payment can actually be paid by a nonprofit organization. And uh, I've got a lot of good information on this. I just want to throw this out. If you're somebody that wants to buy a home and you could otherwise qualify, but you don't have the down payment money, uh, you can get in touch and I'll uh, you know give you some resources. Uh, in one case, I have a national program that just requires you to take an online class to be able to uh, get approved for this grant money. Uh, there's about 12 different ways to qualify for the grant money. So you can reach out to me, uh, be happy to talk to you about that. And then on the topic of mortgages, again, um, uh, getting a lot of people contacting me asking about, uh, home equity lines of credit, um, getting rid of those because their payments are going up because of course these are adjustable rate mortgages and rates are coming down. So it might be a good opportunity to get in touch and we could talk about, uh, getting you into a fixed rate to pay off, uh, that HELOC that you have. Uh, all right. I thought this was funny. Uh, you can get buried in space. They will take your ashes, shoot them into space and then bring them back down to earth 
all for $29.95. That's $2,995. So, you know, if you're a a sci-fi fan, if you're maybe a Star Trek fan or a Star Wars fan, and you thought, you know, maybe I'd like to have my ashes go to space. So I don't know if there are other programs that leave your ashes up there in space, kind of floating around. That would be kind of weird, but uh, there is a program now where for about three grand, you can have your ashes shot into space and then returned to earth. And uh, we'll close it out with this. Uh, you know, being in the real estate business, being a loan officer, uh, I hear a lot of um, generalizations. So one of the big sort of myths and generalizations that's going on right now is that real estate is coming down in value, quote unquote. Um, and anytime you talk about real estate in a monolithic way and you, and you look at it as one thing, you know, real estate is just one thing. It's either going up or going down, kind of like people talk about the stock market, which is kind of, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, possible to talk about the stock market in that way. Uh, because, you know, you do obviously have certain stocks that buck the trend, but I think largely, you know, most of the major stocks kind of, you know, when you've got a down year, most of the major stocks are down. That's true. Real estate is not like that. Real estate is regional. And one of the things we're continuing to see is the statistics are showing that people are continuing to move to the red states. And obviously we've got, you know, basic law of of economics, supply and demand. The more people moving into the red states and what are we talking about? We're talking about Tennessee. There was a a stat out this week about how many people are moving into Tennessee and how prices are are really uh, strong in Tennessee, Texas, Florida, uh, even uh, the Carolinas. So there is a migration and this is uh, largely because of this cultural shift in remote working. I think that is part of it. Part of it is, um, you know, people are just deciding um, they've had it with the cold weather. They've had it with the blue state uh, political uh, policies and they want out. And so uh, people ask me, you know, is this a good time to get in or not? And obviously, when you look at real estate, you have to look at trends and you have to look at longer term timelines in just like a month or two months or six months or even a year. But clearly we have these solid established trends of net inflows of people into these red states, in particular states like Tennessee, Texas, Florida, for example. And that's why I continue to be so bullish on real estate in these areas. Hey, if you're looking to move to Florida where I live, uh, I'd love to help you. Uh, I'm not in the real estate side of it anymore, but I do have real estate brokers and agents that I can refer you to. And I can certainly talk to you about the financing side of it, which is, uh, you know, a large part of what I presently do uh, during my day hours. All right. That is another episode for you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Reach out. Let me know uh, if you've got a question you'd like me to address on the show. If you agree or disagree with something I said on the show, uh, I'm always open to getting educated. You know, I, I post sometimes a video or an article and somebody says, Hey, you got this wrong. And, uh, if I get it wrong, I'm going to say I got it wrong and, and fix it. So, uh, I'm always happy to, uh, to get educated and hear the other side. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris live. So long, everybody talk to you next time.